Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. I'm Cheryl Nason. Our show features the hottest authors and introduces you, our listeners, to exciting new authors talking about themselves and their latest books. On Land and Offshore describes the two books featured on today's show. Have you ever dreamed of owning a piece of paradise in Central Florida? Well, dream no more. Real estate guru Garrett Kenny tells all in his new book, Buying and Owning Property in Central Florida. While engineer Tron Ben Dixon gives readers new insights into offshore projects in his industry-oriented new book, Commissioning of Offshore Oil and Gas Projects. Garrett Gary Kenny has a background in logistics, warehousing, commercial and residential property development, as well as sales and marketing. He's the CEO of the Florida-based Feltrim Group of Companies. He has more than 25 years' experience in the real estate industry. He's joining us today to talk about his new book, Buying and Owning Property in Central Florida. Welcome, Gary. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to talk to you. How are you today? I'm doing very well, and I really, really like the book. I did notice something that I thought was very interesting. You say that you wrote the book expressly for overseas buyers, and I was curious, why did you feel that there was a need for a book like that? Well, I suppose, Cheryl, I was one of those people that came to Florida in 1996 to buy a vacation home. And there actually wasn't a lot of information out there. And you can imagine the Internet in 1996 and the amount of information it contained. So I was, if you want to call me, the original guinea pig that explored about buying a house. I checked all the avenues, um, and I ended up buying what I was very, very happy with. But as I got more involved in the business and I tried to impart my experience, my information to other people, there wasn't a lot of places to do it, um, Cheryl. And what I found was there was a lot of mistruths or miscommunications or misunderstandings out there. I did research. I went to Amazon to see what book um, were available. And from memory, Cheryl, it was about 2000 or 2001 when, they, when somebody last wrote a book. And it wasn't really, it wasn't comprehensive. So I said about writing the book that you've read, and I wanted to impart as much information to the international buyer as possible. But I suppose I do need to add on, Cheryl, when you say international, um, people from other states in the USA outside Florida could also find the book of use of use too. Like, you know, we get a lot of buyers from the Northeast, Boston, Chicago, New York. Um, but obviously, I'm the one with the funny accent talking to you from, originally from Ireland. And um, there are a lot of international buyers coming to Florida. You have some statistics that really surprised me that I read when I went to Amazon and read the excerpt from the book. It said that buyers from overseas have spent $50 billion plus dollars on more than 250,000 properties in Florida from 2009 to 2013. And you say, you say that those statistics came from the National Association of Realtors. I was shocked. I don't mind telling you, Gary. I had no idea 
that there was so much interest in Florida from outside the U.S. That is correct, Cheryl. Like it is, and that, that's what that's what attracted me to doing business in Florida. I just wasn't dependent on the local economy. It was the local economy. It was the U.S. economy, i.e., other states, and then there was the international economy. And when I first started uh, in this business in '96, Cheryl, we were predominantly selling real estate to the European market, mainly UK. Ireland, Germany, France. But the figure that you quoted out of the 50 billion, the market has really tremendously changed. Like the Canadians are now the number one buyers. Um, we've sold a lot of real estate in the last couple of years to Asia, China, Hong Kong. Um, South America is very strong buyers, Brazil, Argentina, Venezuela. The US market and Florida is looked on as you know a good real estate market good destination for family vacation. And let's face it, Cheryl, like buying a home, renting it out when you're not there and having someone else help you pay the cost of maintaining that home is pretty attractive. That's what originally attracted me to Florida. I loved Florida as a, as a tourist destination. And uh, this was a way for me to buy a home, rent it out and curb some of my expenses. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I agree with what you said earlier about this book. It's so comprehensive that anyone, whether they're from another country or internally from the United States, from another state, this book just has so much information. How long did it take you to research and put together the book? Because it is so comprehensive. Well, actually, Cheryl, that came about most of the content of the book is based on real live experience of my years operating in Florida. As I said, I started in 96 in Florida. Prior to that, I was developing real estate in Ireland. Um, so the information imparted in the book is really a download from everything that has happened to me, the real live experiences I've had. I've encountered dealing with people at various trade shows around the world or dealing with people when they come into our offices to talk about real estate. The one thing that you know, runs through my mind a lot, Cheryl, is when people, and, and I'm going to use a UK example here, people will come in from the UK, they'll be very interested in buying a property, and one of the things we'll say, one of the things they will say is, oh, well, if we were in the UK, we would do this. Or if we were in Ireland, we would do this. Well, you know that very old saying that says, when in Rome, do as the Romans do? You've got to pay attention to the local market. There's an old, a very old adage out there um, about real estate, and it's location, location, location. That doesn't change out. Like in central Florida, it's all about location and where you want to be. So what you've seen in the book is really a collection of real live instances, real live facts and trying to educate the consumer so that they can better ask questions when they come. If they don't come to Gary Kenny's company and they just come to you know somebody else, I hope the questions I've raised will actually help people buy property better and be happy with the process they're going through. That was my goal. What do you think one of the most important things you raise in the book is for our listeners to know? 
I suppose, Cheryl, one of the things, never throw common sense out. Like, you're on vacation, you're in the sunshine, it's beautiful weather, especially if you come from, you know, overseas climates where it's cold, Florida sunshine is there, so, oh yeah, this is the place I want to be. Research. Just like you would go to buy a new automobile, you'll go out and you'll probably check a couple. When you come to Florida, my expertise, I cannot help you in Miami, Sarasota, any places like that. And I tell you that, I tell you that up front. I'm very good, and I don't mean that in an, in an arrogant way, within one hour of Disney. That's our marketplace. That's our backyard. We and all my team know that market very well. So if someone's interested in uh, a property in central Florida, i.e. the Orlando area, close to the attractions of Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, we can help. And that's what that book was written about. But please, please, common sense applies. You know, I think it would. it's very easy when you go to a place like Florida. It's very seductive. And it's so beautiful. And the beaches are so white. And it just... It's like paradise. And I think it would be very, very easy to get caught up in the moment and maybe spend more money than you really have in the budget to spend. That's very important. And, and the one thing that comes to mind when you mention that is we can deal with typically husband and wife. We take them through certain scenarios. One thing I've described in the book is don't get caught up in what we call the builder's show model. The builder's show model will contain every conceivable option that you may desire but may, may not be able to afford. So when you look at a builder's model, try where possible to get the builder or the agent you're working with to show you a similar home, similar floor plan with less attractive thrills so that you know exactly what you're getting into. Again, Cheryl, that's the issue of common sense. And what I've learned is I do not get between husband and wife. The husband sometimes is driven by the numbers. The wife is driven by maybe the extra bedroom for the kids or whatever. And when it gets to that point, I leave them to sleep on it overnight. And usually by the time we meet them the next morning, they've worked out exactly what they want. Well, you know, there is a saying that says common sense is not so common anymore. <laughs> it's not. And another one, Cheryl, is... You know, sometimes uh, I've given you a story in the book where I dealt with an accountant. And you would imagine an accountant is very good at running numbers. And he entered into an arrangement with another company where I told him he was mad at the time. I said, there's no way you can achieve those type of figures. But being the accountant, he worked on numbers. And Cheryl, four months later, he came back to me saying, could I help him out? Because the numbers hadn't materialized the way he thought they were going to be. Wow. And that's exactly what you want to avoid. Correct. Yes, that's what I've been trying to avoid with writing the book. You also talk in the book, and I thought this was a very important part. You talk about you have legal terms, how they're defined in the Florida market, and you talk about the legal process. And, you know, things like this not only vary from country to country, obviously, but state to state. So to me, if you're thinking about doing something in Florida, it would be very important to understand all of the legal ramifications and you also cover taxation. I think those are very important areas. 
Correct, Cheryl. Legal is a bit easier to deal with versus taxation. So let me deal with legal first. Coming from another state, you're quite correct. Um, the laws can be different in you know, New York, Boston, Chicago. Um, but one group of people that I thoroughly recommend we use in Central Florida is the title company. And we can also introduce you to attorneys. If you're very comfortable dealing with an attorney, we can introduce you to that uh, attorney to help you. A title company will ensure that you've got free and clear title to the property. Um, Europeans are more used to using the attorney. So they need um, some reassurance that, you know, they need some explanation as to what a title company actually does for them. And I emphasize to people, a title company has to be independent. It's important to use the independent aspect of a title company. It's also important when you're paying money. We advise people, one of the top things to get across to people is, please do not pay money to an individual. I've seen people time and time again pay money over to an individual and the transaction did not go well for them. Place the money in an independent escrow account with a title company and that way they know at least the money is secure until they get and sign a contract. If you're dealing, Cheryl, with a reputable um, real estate person, that real estate agent will be very, very familiar with the market in their area. Back to what I said earlier, our backyard. So they are fully licensed, fully licensed by the state of Florida. We have about 40 real estate agents in our company, more than qualified to deal with most aspects of the buying client, be it from the USA or be it from uh, Europe, Asia, South America. One of the things that really came to my mind as you were talking about this, Gary, is in this day and time, let's face it, there is so there are so many people out there who will take advantage of someone. And the point that you make about dealing with an individual, not with someone who's a professional realtor, that seems like that would be dicey at best and you could wind up losing everything and wind up with absolutely nothing. So I think one of the really important things about your book is that you're saying get with professional people that you can trust. Am I right? You're 100% uh, correct, Cheryl, but I will add one thing on because as you were speaking to me, it recalls a situation. You can have a very, very professional real estate person. You can have a real estate person that knows the back market, the backyard, inside out. They know everything about the area. But you know what, Cheryl? You actually have to be able to work with that person. So it's important when you pick your professional, not only work with them on a professional level, but also on a person-to-person level, that they deal with you and treat you as a person, not just as a client. So I think that working relationship with the people is very important also. If it's not, you may have to look for somebody else. Like, I very, very rarely have had to fire clients, but on the odd occasion you do, because it's a little bit like Cheryl going to the doctor. I go to the doctor, I have a pain in my side, and the doctor tells me this, this, this. And they're saying, no, doctor, you're wrong. If I was in wherever... This pain would represent, you know, it's connected to my knee, it's connected to my hip. Why did you go to the doctor to start with? To seek professional advice. 
So when your realtor is telling you and giving you professional advice, it's important you listen to them. It's important you're able to work with them. But if you're not able to work with them, maybe you need to find another realtor that can work with you. Oh, I think that's excellent advice. Now, if our listeners are interested in finding you, you have a website? I do, show, yeah. Um, I don't put out a personal website because everything is done through our business. And our business is feltrimgroup.com. That's F-E-L-T-R-I-M group.com. That encompasses our real estate development because talking to you, I'm the real estate developer. I develop a lot of the projects. Uh, we also have a num- uh, three real estate brokerages and we're involved in property management um, as well. Everything is encompassed under feltrimgroup.com. How about the book? Our listeners are probably wondering where they can get the book. And I did mention that I went to Amazon.com, and there is a very nice excerpt on Amazon.com. Where else can they find it, Gary? Cheryl, it's also available at AuthorHouse.com. AuthorHouse, I recognize as a big American operation that was able to help me get the message out in the U.S., So I put it out through AuthorHouse.com to help me with U.S. Well, I have to tell you that it's been an absolute education and a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for being our guest. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Carol. And I will say, if you're coming to Orlando, Florida, make sure you look me up and give me an email and tell me you're coming. I may may take you up on that, Gary. Thanks again. No problem. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Tron Ben-Dixon joins us today to talk about his new book, Commissioning of Offshore Oil and Gas Projects. Tron is both a marine and a petroleum engineer, with 35 years of experience in the oil and gas offshore industry. He's a sought-after speaker, and he's written books about business process improvement as well as business process analysis tools and techniques. Currently, he's working as a management consultant in the North Sea. Trond, welcome. Thank you very much, Cheryl. Now, this book is not a mainstream book. I'm sure when you wrote it, you had a target audience in mind. Who is that target audience? Well, absolutely, Cheryl. Uh, well, uh, what we had in mind when we wrote it was the uh, oil and gas um, community, if you like, uh, the oil and gas operators, uh, the oil and gas contractors, and uh, also uh, the uh, uh, education institutions, as it were, the universities, management studies, and stuff like that. Why did you think it was necessary to write the book? Well, well, basically because we've been uh, working uh, on these offshore mega projects for about 35 years, both of us, and and uh, we have not seen any literature on this particularly important part of project management that we call commissioning, which is the latest part of any project of testing all the equipment for readiness for operations and all that stuff. We have not seen any literature on it, so there's no re- no reference material whatsoever. So we, we thought it was a good idea to put something down in writing after all these years in the industry. Well, it sounds like it, and it sounds like you have just a wealth 
of experience to share with people. Yes, we think we do, and, and we've already had some pretty good uh, uh, feedback on, on the book. It's only been out there for about four, four weeks now, but already we've had some, quite, quite some industry attention around the subject and around the book as such. Now, I'm not going to pretend to have any expertise in this area. I did go, th I went through the book, I went to Amazon, and we'll tell our listeners that they can read an excerpt from the book that's quite nicely done on Amazon. And so what I've basically done is sort of looked at things that triggered questions for me. And I noticed, I thought this was very interesting in a book like this, you included an ethics and a value section. What do you feel the most important message from that section is to the readers? Well, basically, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a heap of projects going on uh, simultaneously in this industry, and there's a lot of project managers doing multiple projects, and that's a pretty tough task. And, and uh, everything goes so fast, so rapid, that we thought it was a good idea to just take a step back and say, hey, make sure you do this wisely, uh, that you, you, you include the ethics in your work as such, so that everybody can look back at this and say, we did it. We did this properly, we did this um, uh, diligently, and we did this in a prudent manner. So, so not taking any shortcuts, uh, that would be very easy when in a hectic work day on, on these big projects that the, the pressure is on, you need to deliver on time, on cost, and, and it's, it's just we thought it was so important to, to start with an introduction and, and just ground the managers and say, hey, take a minute, read this, make sure you have this under your skin when you proceed and, 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 and continue to do the project work that you have to do to finish it. I think that's excellent because you're absolutely right. I'm sure, as someone who's looking at this from the outside, that it gets very, very hectic, and I know that there must be a lot of pressure. And sometimes people forget this part because it's uh, it, it, sometimes it's not the most effective or efficient way to do it, but it's the right way to do it. So I, was, I thought this was a great thing for you to include. I also liked that you put in the keys to success and that you basically divided that into four areas, planning, preparation, execution, and documentation. And that's basically how the book breaks down. When you're, when you're talking about the planning phase, is there a bottom line message that you want to get out to your reader about planning? It is. So the, the bottom line is, is basically that on all these projects that that consistently show tremendous overruns, at least since 1996, there's been a lot of overruns, cost and schedule-wise, on these mega projects. And, and one of the key messages when it comes to planning is that we do not do enough what we call um, front-end loading or upfront planning. We're not early enough in there. And the manage, managers do not have end-in-mind focus so that we should start with the end from a planning perspective and look at how can we make sure that the end comes in 
when where the end is supposed to come in. So you start early planning for the latter part, for the last part of the project. That is the key uh, message in the planning section. You need to be in there early to plan for the commissioning, which is the latest stage of, that stage of any project, and make sure it happens and, it, and it's streamlined. The next one of the key success factors was the preparation phase, and it sounds like the, the planning phase and the preparation phase would be rolled together. Is that is that a yes. correct observation? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. These are basically the. We could have we could have had this together in, in in one section, but what we wanted to do, we wanted to make sure that the focus on this upfront front-end loading planning kind of thing is, is so specifically uh, emphasized in the book that you can't miss it. Then the preparation side is just all the pr practical preparations that runs out of the plan to make sure you prepare for the execution phase of the project. We wanted to divide that because there's quite a few specifics uh, for each of those two phases that we, we thought would be important to, to put emphasis on, if you like. And it strikes me that the continuous improvement and the continuous improvement circle would be something that you would want to incorporate in the whole project from the planning phase to the very end with the handover and takeover phase. Is that a fair thing to say? That is a f absolutely a fair thing to say. We, we, we've seen so many times that we, we were kind of piecemeal on these projects. We don't kind of see the holistic picture, if you like, and we don't see it in a continuous improvement manner, which we should because it's so logical. And we do that in operations environment, but we don't seem to grasp that concept when it comes to project. And basically it has to do with the simple fact that there's so hectic, there's so much pressure on, it seems like we don't have time to get that structure in place. Our key message is that once this structure is built in from the very early part of the project, you just maintain that same concept throughout the project itself. And that maintains the quality, and that keeps the exactly. quality up, and so that your outcome, what you finally get to when you're in that handover, takeover, ending stage, is a project that's worked well, that's hopefully not had a lot of overruns, and I know that's daydreaming most of the time, but that sounds like a logical thing to do. And in the execution phase, it seems that this continuous improvement and continuous improvement circle would be extremely important when you're actually executing the plans and the preparation that you've made. That is uh, that is absolutely right. Uh, if you look at the perspective in the execution phase uh, on continuous improvement, it basically has to do with making sure that all the potential risks, all the small and the big items that will take you down, if you don't work them in a continuous improvement uh, concept or continuous improvement way, uh, that that it, it's just kind of to ensure that we, we have all these things built in, into the risk sessions, the, the risk identification and mitigation part of the uh, uh, execution phase, and then have all these issues work in a structured CI, continuous improvement fashion, not just haphazardly done like it, it is most of the time. It's just to try to set it right into a proper execution structure based on a continuous improvement cycle. 
You know, you just said words that sort of dinged in my head. You said the word risk, and it strikes me that risk and risk management would be a huge piece of any project like this. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 uh, the interesting thing is that we see when, when these projects start out from the outset, on all the what we call the big ticket items, the, the, the big big risks, they are run. They run or, or management run uh, what we call Monte Carlo sessions. They run computer models, kind of looking at all the big risks, like the sail away dates, the the weather window for installing one of these big units in in the North Sea or anywhere else in the world. But when it comes to the smaller risks, they really hit you in the completion and commissioning phase of the project. We, there was not a lot of attention on those issues. And that's what we're trying to say here. Look, we have a lot of risk registers, a lot of practical generic risks that, that go on from project to project. We don't seem to learn on this for some reason. We have these registers. Just make sure you sit down around the table, do some practical risk analysis, quite a few times during the execution phase, and you will be much better off. I'm curious about how many people we're talking about involved in a project like this, because I've, I've seen, obviously I've seen the rigs, and I've seen things like this, but I have no idea about how many people are actually involved when one of these projects is just beginning. Yeah, on, on an average, uh, in, in the in the um, construction phase, which is the uh, the the, the manor consumption kind of biggest manor consumption phase, you would typically see on an average on an average mega project, you would probably see uh, about two thousand, two and a half thousand people working on it. Wow, that's a lot of people. It is. Well, the last of the keys to success is documentation. And then there was a slash, yes. and it's handover and takeover phase. What, do you, what does that mean? Well, it means basically what it means is that once the project organization has done their job, they are supposed to hand the whole thing over to the operating organization that's going to operate this for years down the road. So... In order to do that properly, they have to document all the work they've done, all the testing they've done, all the equipment that is installed has supplier documentation, testing documentation, and everything else. Now, the projects normally tend to wait until the last minute until these what we call takeovers by operations occur. And then holding up that takeover date, i.e. pushing the schedule to the right, because the documentation is not ready. Our key point here is to develop that documentation and maintain and update that documentation as you go. So when you come to the scheduled takeover time by operations, the documentation is ready. That's, uh, that's a huge risk not to have that documentation ready because you're pushing the schedule to the right. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, it does. even to me, that makes perfect sense. Where running out of time and I wanted to give you a, an opportunity to give our listeners a bottom line about the book if you could sit down with the people who are listening to our interview one-on-one -on -one, what's the thing that you would like for them to take away from your book okay so quite a few things but I'll, I'll, I'll 
keep it down. I keep the list down. Okay, but good. The, the, the major, major points are make sure that you involve the completion, the end in mind, get the end in mind focus by involving the commissioning and operations people very, very early in the project planning or rather the design phase of the project to make sure it's commissionable, it's operable. So you don't get all the changes along the way so the project grows and the, 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 the money goes and the schedule goes to the right. Now that's one thing. So it's upfront planning. The other is make sure you continuously focus on the risks. Have practical risk sessions done four or five, maybe six times during the project execution phase. The other thing is make sure you organize the project in a process fashion, not in a silo fashion. Make sure that everybody is focused on the final, what we call the ultimate takeovers, namely when operations are supposed to take over the systems and the platform and the, and, and the, uh, the project as such. That's the main three issues I would uh, say is a takeaway. If our listeners want the book, I have already mentioned that they can go to Amazon.com. They can put in the name of the book, which is Commissioning of Offshore Oil and Gas Projects and by Trond, and I'm going to spell your last name. It's B-E-N-D-I-K-S-N-E and pronounced Ben Dixon. Now, you have a co-author. Jeff Young is your co-author, right? Yep. Yes. So if they go to Amazon and put that information in, the book will come up and they can read an excerpt. Where else is the book available, Tron? Uh, the uh, the book is available first and foremost actually from AuthorHouse.com. So they can go to the website for AuthorHouse and mm-hmm. there it'll be. Yeah, exactly. Now, do you have a website that the listeners could go to and find out more about you? I do not have a website, unfortunately. I do have an email, of course, but I do not have a website, unfortunately. Could they contact you? Are you comfortable giving them a way to contact you if they wanted more information? I would be happy to answer any questions anyone would have regarding this book or any other questions on my email. Would you like to give which them? Is, yeah, which is Tron, my first name, at Ben Dixon, my last name, dot net, N-E-T. Are you a Facebook and a Twitter person, Trond? I sense you're not. Yes, I, I am on. You t- are. I am on Twitter. Yes, yes. So, how could they find you on Twitter? Same address. Good. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. You have been so interesting, and the book. I think you, you and Jeff, have done such a wonderful job on it. I'd like to thank you for talking with me today. Thank you very much, Cheryl. It's been a pleasure. Our time is up, and we'd like to thank you for yours. Remember, pick up a good book and read.